I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broken in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband or significant other and substantially more than you, which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month, or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? We need to talk about the impact of debt, but also, more importantly, how to get out of debt. And I need you to come forward to make this podcast possible. Welcome to The Brock Architect. You will hear from real architects with very real problems and maybe some will offer some real solutions so that you never become a broke architect please share subscribe and comment to support the channel i have with me today paul idden who is a british architect he's a marketing specialist and vice president of the manchester society of architects Now, Paul understands sales, and he specialized within architecture to run an agency um, called Agency PSI, which markets construction products, writes CPD presentations, and also has clients, um, including grocery clients, and maybe that's something we we can discuss. And Paul was also a partner in a design-focused practice in Manchester for many years. He's navigated his way through a number of recessions, and you couldn't get a better guest. And so firstly, welcome to the first season of the Brock Architect podcast. And uh, I'd just like to welcome you to um, to this podcast, Paul, and just ask, how are you today? Um, I'm good, thanks. Um, it's it's um, it's a lot colder than where you are. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's a <laughs> Sunday and it's it's got above zero, so it's um, it's okay. But no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. We're re- recovering from bugs like everybody else over Christmas. But no, all good at this end. Thanks, Jason. How are you? No, I'm I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, just uh, surviving the heat of South Africa. But uh, you know, I'm I'm surviving. <laughs> just yeah, cool drinks and aircon. Yeah, yeah. I'd just like to start with Paul. Um, could you just tell me, um. Could you just tell me why you wanted to be an architect, but also, um, you know, did you know before you went on to study architecture, did you think it would be a well-paid profession? Um, well, I, I first was introduced to the idea of architecture by my art teacher at school. I went to school in Liverpool um, when I was about 16, 15, 16. And I was choosing A levels, um, and he taught. I was interested in arts, but I was also interested in science and things like that. And he suggested, "Oh, he said architecture," 
and I started looking. So I got some books out the library and stuff. So that was when I got introduced to it, but I didn't know much about it. Um, there was no professions in my family background. As we mentioned before, I came from a fairly modest working class background, per perfectly good. Grew up in a social housing. It was all fine and it was wonderful. Um, just, you know, we we didn't have those kind of connections into the professional world. So um, I started to look at it. Um, I had no idea. I, I assumed like everybody, it would be a well-paid profession, I suppose. Um, and then when I did my A-levels, um, I did actually go and talk to a couple of architects, one in Blackpool, where I was living, and one in Manchester. And they gave me a rough idea of what kind of salaries architects could earn. And it, it seemed like quite a lot at the time. Um, my dad seemed to think it was quite a lot. It was it was several times his salary in the fire service. So I felt quite confident I was going into something that was going to have a decent salary. Um, and, I'd, and I, you know, I'd, I'd sort of checked it out as far as I could, I suppose. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's really, um, really interesting as well. And uh, and I'm guessing, you know, looking at the profession of architecture, comparing to what your parents, you know, jobs were in the modest yeah. sort of background, it was probably seen as quite a, um, you know, profession, a profession is generally seen as, you know, a high level of attainment. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to think back to when you were, back at that level how how much did you think an architect earned i can't remember now i mean i don't i, I you know yeah. I, but it was it was you know you it was up there with lawyers and doctors and things like that so whilst i did i can't remember the figures they quoted at the time but it was you know um i remember both my parents thinking it was wow you know and they were so proud of the idea of me being an architect that nobody would ever the history of my family had ever entered a profession and so that i mean mum and my dad both left school when they were 14 got caught up in the second world war my dad was on d-day on the 6th of june when he was 21 years old um and my mum worked in a you know factory that was turned over to you know making tanks <laughs> in liverpool so they they never had those opportunities but they wanted their kids my, i've got an elder brother and an elder sister they wanted us to have the opportunities they didn't and mm. when i mentioned my brother did in went into arts and graphics my sister didn't actually go to university but she ended up in the civil service and i um i was you know I, when i said i wanted to be a professional they were sort of like wow but they you know they had no real knowledge of it um so so it was it was quite a ambitious thing i suppose um but you know what you like when you're 17 18 you don't think like that really um, the world, the world seems so. The potential is huge, you know. So I, I never it occurred to me that I couldn't do it, you know. So no. I suppose they felt perhaps there was just too many barriers for them, and there were. I mean, they never had gone to university in in you know, the era they grew up in, you know, in the nineteen thirties and forties. So so it was you know it was a big it was a big thing for them. Um, and you know it was um so when i went and studied it they were they were a bit perplexed by what i did <laughs> they knew it was a drawing board involved and and stuff like that and pens um but beyond that i don't think they really knew what it was about i knew it was buildings but i think beyond that they didn't 
really grasp what the process was and the education. Yeah, yeah. But, um, where did you study um, for architecture then? You know, where did you go? Well, that was another funny story because I actually applied to... I, I got into UCL, the Bartlett School. Um, mm. I don't know if it's called the Bartlett School then. I can't remember. But it was U, U, UCL. And I got into Liverpool University School of Architecture. You know, uh, uh, James Sterling's alma mater, you know. Um, and the oldest school of architecture in, in the world, I think, was the UK, Liverpool. But I ended up going to Manchester Poly School of Architecture because I didn't want to go back to Liverpool and I couldn't afford London. So right. that Manchester Poly became MMU, but it became Manchester School of Architecture um, after, you know, after a while. So I went to Manchester Poly. Um, but they did 36 weeks, though, which seemed better to me than 30, which is the university year at the time. I, I don't know if I thought I was getting better value for money or something. <laughs> but that, that's, I remember that being a thought in my head. Ah, I did not know that. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to value. That's what we're that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, sure. And you know, let's dive in with dive in with a question then, because we've we've attained. You know, you became an architect. You studied uh, Manchester, and um, I'm just I just want to ask you what your thoughts are. Is architecture in a healthy state, in your opinion? And if it isn't, um, you know, what 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 do you believe are the issues? And I'm framing this with um, over the past, I think, five years, I've seen, I've seen architects move away from the traditional model of, you know, practice owners having, you know, partners, directors, and now moving into employee ownership models. Mm, yeah, we've seen, I've seen all that too. Yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Well, taking them first of all is architecture in a healthy state. Um, I think I don't think it. I don't think. Um, I think it, well. I, I I think it's fair to say that most people think it isn't. Um, listen, I listen to obviously I don't practice, but I listen to a lot of architects. I think it depends where you are. If you're in London, one of the big practices, they you know they they do considerably better than practices elsewhere. I think if you're in smaller practices, it's a lot harder. Um, no, I think I think the the general changes to the professions over the last thirty forty years, there's been a profound impact on all professions but architecture is has definitely suffered um and it's that's through specializations you know the kind of like carving up of the architect's role um procurement patterns design and build the rise of the project manager um and you know that, that i say that the procurement issues um i think have had a huge impact um in terms of numbers, you could argue this healthier than it's ever been because there. My understanding is that there's an article in the AJ. We talked about this um, in August last year, where they said there's seven percent more students than previous years, and apparently there's more architecture students now than ever. Which brings its own issues, I think. Um, but I, I, I'm, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm positive. You know, I've got to stay positive and believe that. You know, we architects can navigate their way through these current choppy waters and find purpose and meaning in you know in in the way that only architects can. Um, at the end of the day, you can't really get anywhere without an architect. I know people seem to think that architects are 
you know, can mm. be dispensed with, but that's just not true. <laughs> just rubbish. Um, you, no serious developer or planner would ever believe that you can move anywhere on any project of any significance or even moderate significance without the work of an architect. So um, I'd like the profession to not keep talking itself down, which it's doing a lot of, because from a marketing perspective, if you keep telling you th telling people things are bad, they'll end up believing you. So, you know, we should stop saying things that make us look bad or weak. You know, we should start bigging ourselves up a bit more, you know, because yeah. architects do a phenomenal job. And I just wish they'd talk a bit more positively about it. But I've got huge respect for architects. And, yeah, I, I know how much it, what it costs you to do what they do. Uh, I just... I just wish some of the negativity around it would uh, would would we could shift it. Yeah, no, With no, no. Passion, you know, yeah. we like beating I mean, ourselves uh, up in the way that project managers don't. I think. <laughs> well, the the Brock Architect podcast it sounds quite negative, and you know the the connotation of of um you know a broken profession, um, but it really it it's only through sometimes talking the negative that you can also find the positive in, in a way um you know oh, yeah. and people love people love to hear um bad stories you just look at the newspapers you know that'll give you give you it but it's 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 a way really of um at least having a debate and you know i'm really um before we leave this question i i, I just wonder why you you can see that it is it is a good model, you know, giving salaried architects um part of the um part of the company through employee ownership. Um, I'm just um, I'm just yeah, wondering what yeah what then what the pitfalls you see are with that because it really is a trend that everyone seems to be moving to and and every time. You know, a practice turns into a employee ownership. It's sort of um, it's in the architects' journal. Oh, look at you know this this we've turned into a employee ownership company. Well, that's part of the story, isn't it? You know, yeah. you can argue that employee ownership empowers people, and that's true. But you know, being the skeptic that I am, um, uh, you know, you, well, yeah, I think most architects are. A, skeptical but positive we're kind of both aren't we there's a sort of a paradox um having owned i've been a shareholder in several companies mm. um i'm always thinking like why would you want to give the shares away in a company that has value unless it doesn't have value you know share, shareholding is this well to, to explain you know if, if you're an employee and in a limited company even the directors are employees and you get paid a salary whether you're a director or not in a limited company, and obviously it's different in a partnership, a um, different setup. But if you're talking about a limited company, then everybody's salaried, including the directors usually. And and you get paid a salary for doing your work. That's your employment contract. And so you work with them. And then, but share ownership is something different. And share ownership is where you invest money and time and energy and take risk on the basis you're going to get a return on your investment. That's what shareholding's about. That's why people own shares in Marks and Spencer's or, you know, um, all the listed companies, FTSE 100 and things like that. Um, so what I'm wondering is, is that, well, first of all, 
you've got to be careful about ownership because to to get a reward you've also got to have risk i mean those two things go side by side so on a number of occasions i've i've invested money in in in, in the shareholding of a company thousands and thousands you know and on the basis that I'm going to expect that to grow and I'm going to get dividends on it, which <laughs> is quite rare, or at least the share share value would increase. And at some point in the future, you can sell those shares, you know, through a, a number of different means. Um, now, one way, and, and I think the way the, um, my understanding is the way the employee uh, ownership model works is that the shares are bought by the company from the directors or the shareholders, sorry. And then, the, so the directors then get the value of those shares, okay, because they're paid by the company. And then basically the own, the the um, this is one I've heard of, then the shares, a class of shares that are distributed amongst the employees for, for little or no investment. But of course, what's in the background, I would imagine in a scenario like that, is that the company through its profits is paying back the directors over a course of years for their share value. So it's 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 not the directors having donated the shares in a situation like that. They've had the shares bought from, so they've realised their value. And at that point, the share the shares are aren't worth anything because they've been bought, and so yeah. the company buys them, distributes it. So if I was an employee in an employee in an employee owned company, I'd be first thing a quite a good question to ask would be. What's the downside? Yeah. Okay, I get my salary. I haven't been asked to put invest like five or ten thousand pounds to buy shares in it. So these shares you're giving me, you know, like what's the story? Is there yeah. a downside to this? Because if you own the company, then you are also assuming some level of risk. I, I can't see how you can you can't. So that if the company then gets into difficulty, then as a shareholder, you'd be expected to either invest money in the company to 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 if there's a cash flow problem or take a pay cut or something like that. And you know, you're not just an employee anymore, you're a shareholder as well. So it's it's yeah. a bit more complicated. So whilst I think, you know, generally speaking, it sounds like a great idea in a lot of cases, yeah, you know, everything's got you need to look at everything carefully and say, well, what do I, am I taking on risk here? What's the fine print say, you know, being a shareholder on a couple of, I think I mentioned before on several occasions in the past, I've had to invest up pump money into the company to get over a cash flow problem. I've usually managed to get the money back out within a reasonable period of time, but you can imagine a scenario where you go to the shareholder and say, we need to raise 50,000 quid to, to help us over the next six months because we've got cash flow difficulties. Otherwise, we'll go into liquidation. And cash flow is the biggest killer of companies more than anything else. Um, so that's what could be in the fine print. Are, they gonna, are you going to come to me and ask me for five grand to capitalise the company because I'm a shareholder? Because you're the first port of call, the shareholders. It depends, but it depends on class of shares and whether you've got voting rights and Let's just say it's not it's not as straightforward as it looks. Complex, and, yeah, complex subject, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, and it's it's not quite this sort of like the headline, you know, isn't it great from a social point of view? Because there's always something, there's always an economics behind it. Limited companies and companies like that, you know, that the, the, there's a very clear structure to the way they operate, 
and under the law, and, you know, and and the way the accountants look at it and they value it. So, you know, it's not unless it's a cooperative, which is a different setup entirely. Um, if it's employee and limited company, then I would imagine that there's things that go with that, and it and it pays to have a good look at it before you just say accept them or, you know. You know the thing with "don't look a gift horse in the mouth." You know that expression, and the whole idea being that you know if you've got any sense, of course you yank open the horse's mouth, have a look at its teeth, because that's the, where the expression comes from. If horses can't eat properly because they've got bad teeth, then then they're a problem. They're not going to be able to work. They can't have any energy. So yeah, so yeah, <laughs> never take anything on face value. Well, okay. thanks, thanks for that, Paul. <laughs> Tough question, uh, I understand. And uh, I just want to go back a little bit to your first experience of, of debt, because I know you, you know, being a practice owner comes with um, a certain, managing a certain level of debt. And I just wanted to go back to firstly university. And, you know, um, I think you, you and I both probably um, had fees you know paid for we didn't have to pay for our, yes, yes. our university fees and we had a grant but mm. you know what, what was it like when you were studying at university you know did did you get into debt oh yeah i mean it wasn't the kind of debt i mean it, it, it was the sort of um day-to-day -day debt that students had you know i mean we could you couldn't survive on the grant and so and until i could i did summer jobs and stuff like that but i always seem to be chasing overdrafts um you know, we lived in cheap accommodation. I think I mentioned to you that I lived in one of the Crescents in Hume for three years, which was grim. Okay. Um, a lot of people wax lyrical about these places now, but they haven't lived. They didn't live there. Um, trust me, you wouldn't want to live there. Um, so, you know, we lived the typical student life. But, yeah, I was chasing debt all the way through. And by the time I finished the course, I go to about 5K, which that was 86. So That's I guess quite a lot. In, then it's quite a lot. It's probably worth about 10, 15 grand now. But it's yeah. not the kind of level of debt that people accumulating now, um, you know, which is huge. Um, mm. We were very fortunate back then. I mean, that being said, income tax rates were higher. Um, it wasn't it wasn't quite as straightforward as as, as it being, you know, it, you know, is a balancing act. But certainly, it was. Um, I always knew I could get out of that debt, and I didn't have a long term debt, um, which the way that you know students have now which i think is must be very worrying um yeah and you know understandably so um i've had two kids go through university they didn't pay the nine thousand but they were paying the three thousand as it was back then and you know i said to them you're lucky you weren't, <laughs> you weren't borrowing nine um so i did have debt and you know i kind of went into employment and did private work and all sorts to sort of pay it off, which I did eventually, mostly, mostly, um, before I started then getting into, you know, business ownership and then all the issues and debt that go with that, which is a, a, a different oh, come on to that. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, I worked my way up. So I, was, I was picked up at my diploma show by a, quite a design-led practice at the time, Stevenson Mills, it was called. Yeah. And then I was in there and I worked my way up over a course of years. And I suppose went through, you know, got my part three, architect, senior architect, then associates. And then um, and then 
things changed and I became a director. Um, at that point, Stevenson Mills had, uh, Stevenson and Mills had parted company and formed two different practices, as is often the case in architecture. Um, yeah. And a bunch of us went one way and a bunch of people went the other way and formed, you know, what is now Buttress. It used to be MBLC, then LBI. And on our, the side I was on, it was Stevenson Architecture, which then, well, it, you know, it became a number of practices over time. But that was the, when I was there, that was it. And I borrowed um, at the age of about 30, 31. I borrowed wow. a bunch of money to buy shares in the company. Um, and uh, I was paying a professional practice loan each month, um, did, which was not did you, honestly, did you know what you were doing at the time? Did you, you know, <laughs> I know, I know hindsight's a wonderful thing, but it seems for me, it seems fairly young 30, 31 to be borrowing that kind of money and investing it in a company. Yeah, it was, and I was quite naive actually. Um, I'm not saying I was hoodwinked or anything, it was just I didn't really understand what the downsides could be. And, you know, a recession came along in the late, early 90s. And that we suffered badly because we were doing a lot of commercial offices at that time and interest rates rocketed. I think at one point they were like 15%. It was crazy. So that killed the commercial office market for a while. And that pretty much took us out. And yeah. so I lost that money. And I'd borrowed that money when my son was about three or four months old. And I paid off the last payment just as he, just as he hit his eighteenth birthday. So that was a that was a mistake. Well, um, I wasn't able to pay it off quickly, and so basically I just had to live with it. Um, so that was yeah, I was naive. I think a lot. Um, I wasn't the only one, but yeah, that was a that was a lesson, a life lesson. I wasn't. I didn't forget. And you know, whilst I could manage that a lot of the time. It's um, yeah, it was difficult. It was really hard, actually, especially when we formed OMI because um, it was carrying that debt with me, and we didn't get paid for a long time. Well, because you, you know, cash flow. Well, you you're building a practice, and we were lucky we had some live work, but we had to wait till we had stage payments, and yeah. and um, so that was a really hard time, and I was in debt. I couldn't pay my mortgage and trying to form a practice. And the weird thing was there was no form of government support in that situation at all. You know, because you're not unemployed. You can't get any support for that. I had two small children and I was basically told by the DHSS, was it called then, or DSS, very yeah. politely and very sort of, you know, they, they looked very worried, but they said, there's, there's literally nothing we can do. So I had to borrow and do all sorts of private work and work in a pub and stuff and just to get through. So I, I know what it's like. And, you know, debt is a form of prison. It's horrible. It's horrible. Um, it's easy to get into and extremely hard to get um, out of. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's, it's perilously easy. That's why I always say when it comes to share ownership, or your responsibilities as a shareholder, you, you get some advice. Just it, nothing, you know, nothing's ever as straightforward as it looks. Um, and I feel, you know, I I do feel a lot for a lot. I know a lot of architects who are practice owners, and 
that's hard. It's really hard, especially a smaller practices. Um, yeah. I don't envy them at all. I think I, I just just before we leave this this topic um, or this question, rather, you know, you were you were you had two young children, mm. uh, a lot of debt, really, um, a practice and responsibilities to your salaried staff, and you know, I'm just wondering how that affected your personal life. Not good. Um, it, debt. It's like I think we've said before. It's like having small children who won't sleep. It'll find the cracks in any marriage, you know, and um, that's why it's never a good idea. If you've got difficulties in a marriage, having a kid doesn't help. It does the opposite. It can do the opposite. Um, and debt is is pernicious. And my former wife, who was very very um, understanding for a long time, but it got to her. Of course, it did. Um, yeah. That's why I changed direction in the end, or one of the reasons, because um, it was just not fair, you know, to, for me to pursue my. Well, when you've got kids and you've got that kind of, you, you've got to make some decisions and you've got to put, you know, you've got to put your family first, and that's what I ended up doing. Um, and I don't regret any of it. Um, I mean, my kids are grown now. My son's thirty-three and got two children himself and um I'm another one on the way and my daughter's 31 next month um and you know so they're they're both doing okay um but it did yeah well that's why I say for my wife we ended up getting divorced in the end um it was yeah. a long time later and it was it but but you know yeah there's a lot of problems yeah without you know and it no. was it was you know that debt is terrible for that it really is yeah you know um and, and if you can't you can't pay it off it's it just gets worse um it, it, yeah gotta be careful with this sort of stuff because <clears throat> it will find the cracks in anything you know it will and it, so oh am i um you that was obviously an architectural practice. Um, just what happened there, and uh, and if you can just touch on that, and because you um, you then moved into um, marketing, and just tell me, just tell me briefly that sort of journey. Well, I I think I think the hangover from the debt and the the issues with with with, with that with the family. I had a young family. Hmm. I was younger than my two partners, and I I I hadn't been paying my mortgage as long, and um. And I wasn't just wasn't is in a a very resilient place economically. And after a while, it became clear that I just had to reconsolidate my life and make things simpler. Um, and so I ended up working for a contractor. So I effectively left the practice. I mean, I'm still friendly with the guys. There was no animosity. It was, they just understood it was a, a personal difficulties and. I went to work for a contractor for a while, um, about two and a half, three years, um, whilst I kind of got things on a bit more of an even keel and let things settle down and got a regular salary, <laughs> that kind of thing. Company car, which was common at the time. Um, and I was a, when things had settled down, I was I wanted to go back into private practice because I, I didn't particularly like working in that company. Um, you know, it just wasn't the kind of work I wanted to do and stuff. Um, after working in OMI and you know, design-led practices, it was it was it it wasn't fulfilling, and I was sort of mid mid 
to late 30s than I was in my 36, 37, 38. Yeah. And that's when I, I actually got asked my brother to whether I could go and work for him for a bit. Um, and when we taught money, it was considerably more. So I moved into basically helping out manage that business. And um, the idea was, was I'd see how it went. And right. I suppose in the back of my mind, I always thought, no, I'll probably end up going back into practice. But it never happened. It, the business took off and I never really had the opportunity to to to, to even think about whether I could go back and be an architect because where I was at the time, it paid a lot better. The family, I moved the family down south to Oxfordshire where, where the company was and they were settled in schools and it was, you know, things were good at then at that point and um, I didn't feel, I, put, I had to put the family first and to be honest, I just decided that I had to pursue this direction. So that's where I've been ever since. Um, and I've worked in, Primarily at that point, it was in the food industry, but business, you know, so it was business to consumer, um, yeah. mainly branding, packaging, design, um, communications. Um, so, yeah, I did a lot of work on um, butter and cheese, <laughs> yogurt. <laughs> wow. the, my biggest client was called Arla Foods, and so plans like Lurpak, Anchor. So, did a lot of work with them. And, I started off working with um I wasn't designing by the way, I was managing help manage the company and the clients. Um started off working one of the jobs I managed was Thomas the Tank Engine Yogurt and Fromage Fray. <laughs> oh wow. Um, which was a bit of I think I said is a bit of an existential challenge for me for quite a while. <laughs> because I'm like, what am I doing? Um but gradually moved into more and more brand work and we went well. We went from earning about twenty five thousand a year doing the kids' license stuff for them, to working on all sorts of the branded products. And in the end, it, it jumped in the end to about three quarters of a million after about three or four years. So it was a. You can see a situation where I couldn't get out. It was just. It was. It was a, a snowball, and um, we ended up employing twenty two, twenty four people, in the agency, and I was managing all. Of, I was managing director, and so. Yeah, uh, I, at that point, I was knew I was never going to go back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and giving you the ability to uh, to pay back your debt as well, I'm I'm, I'm sure. Well, I paid the debt off at that point, and um, but of course, when I got divorced, of course, then <laughs> that all started over again. But that was a long time later, when I was in my late forties. Um, but um, no, I I stayed in the agency world. I've been in it for the past twenty two years, but I moved away from food towards business to business um and shift we shifted the business over a course of about two years from consumer to b2b because we could see that in a similar kind of way to architecture the value was being stripped out of design right the clients weren't digitization was a big part in this before that everything was hand-drawn it was you know um, there's a lot of labor involved but the minute digital the digital world became common you know, um, that that's really when that all started. And so we, I shifted the business position considerably and I played into an area that I understood, which was building products in the construction sector, because I figured that's something I could talk about and I understood. And that was about 10, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And that's 
pretty much what I do. Well, that's what I do now, pretty much exclusively. Although I've still got one food client <laughs> I've had for 30 years. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, so I still quite enjoy that bit. But it's so I've got my I've got my, my, my one of my toes dipped in the consumer world still, um, so to speak. So, um, yeah, no. I, I still remember a lot of that. It, I mean, it's good fun. It's good fun. And I do enjoy what I do. I found meaning in it and purpose. And so um, I'm I'm happy, you know, with doing what I do now. And it does involve my training as an architect and my, you know, all my years building buildings and working with, you know, materials and understanding detailing. And, you know, that that's played right into my ability to do the job I do now. I, I, there isn't a day goes by that I don't use it. Okay, okay. So going back to your time in practice mm. um, and you are vice president of the Manchester Society of Architects, what are your thoughts on um, around architects and their value? And um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discussion within um, societies and within the RIBA about giving away that, you know, things for free. Architects do too much of this. A lawyer doesn't give anyway, anything for free. I can tell you that. No, they don't. They don't. Um, well, I suppose you could ask yourself a question about this. I've been thinking about this one. Why is it that doctors, lawyers, etc., don't don't give anything for free, whereas architects do? And I think, well, if you get all the drama programs on TV, like ER, Casualty, Holby City, you know, um, House, yeah, then you got all the legal ones, Boston Legal, you know. Um, LA law, oh, you know, you name it. You know, there's loads and loads and loads of procedural dramas. It's human drama, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's it's people are extremists in medicine, or if you need a lawyer, usually in a situation where you need help. Whereas it's a different situation with architecture. There's no sort of emergency, <laughs> emergency design. Um, I think architects are incredibly valuable. I think society doesn't doesn't value them. The way they deserve to be valued i mean and i think we're going to find out culturally find out this in the long run um as to giving things away well clearly it's not a good idea it's not a good idea <laughs> i can see why architects get themselves into that situation um i won't do it by the way i won't give work away for nothing anymore um i just refuse i got asked to do it by a client a couple of years ago and they said well you can pitch against our existing agency and I said is your existing agency run by an architect with experience in architecture and they said no and I said well then we're not competing I'm, I'm you know because what then I'd end up doing was giving a load of ideas that they could pick up on and besides they were the incumbent and the incumbent's always got an advantage and this is one of the other problems with when architects go into competition or in the agency, what you call it, pitching. They, I know they don't, that's not the common term. Um, but in, in, in architecture, but... Uh, you know, I told you, I, I told a tale about an architect friend of mine who got approached by a, a developer. He didn't know to give a fee quote on yeah. a, a, a job to do some housing and apartments in South, in North Cheshire somewhere. And this is where I said, well, look, you know, if you don't know them, you're not in, I'd say, column A or B, you're in C or D. 
you've got incumbents, you've got people you're more used to working with, they have a natural advantage. So even though there's four architects pitching for this work, it won't be 25. You, you're not playing on, on a level playing field. Yeah. And you've got to help level. decision you're going to make is, should I refuse it or am I going to go into it and, and commit time and effort? I need to level the playing field. How do you do that? Well, in this situation, he'd never met them. And I said, well, ring them up and say, fantastic. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Really interested. Before we put pen to paper or mouse the screen. <laughs> um, we always like to meet with people and have a chat about the you know the work and what your objectives are and get to know each other a little bit. And I said, and two things are going to happen there. Either they're going to say yes. Come and see us like next Tuesday. We'll have a cup of coffee. By the way, I always try to have a cup of coffee or something to eat. That's important. That's psychological. Yeah. Um, even a biscuit, believe it or not. And um, the second thing is is either, either that or they turn around and say, no, we're too busy. Can you just do what we ask? In which case, my advice would be don't go any further. Say no. I'd like to find this statistic again. I saw it in a presentation on a thing called solution selling. And it was actually in Denmark I did this course. And this guy said in a four-way pitch, where you're not in column A, but you're in column C or D, your chance of winning could be as low as 11%, not 25%. Wow. So if you go meet them, you ask lots of open-ended questions and hopefully they'll tell you things that, that weren't on the brief and you'll get to know them a bit better. You hopefully find out who the competition is and you'll be able to make a value judgment at that point. So you're working towards better information and that's how you level the playing field. Um, but if it's basically no, and if it's any more than three or four, you know, yeah, don't go anywhere near it because forget it. If you're going to six or seven, just point blank refuse unless you're the, you're the incumbent. You know, unless you've worked with them before. If you haven't worked with them before and you're up against six other people, you're never going to win. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ah, okay. All right. Well, um, I asked this question that I'm going to ask you now, Paul, um, to an Australian architect, and it's re regarding um, the old master builder that architects used to be. You know, we uh, historically um, were seen to do um seem to do everything um and it seems now we have facade engineers solar specialists you know just just a whole raft of um specialists taken away from um what the architect i guess used to do but we still have that responsibility to, to coordinate everything and um you know it's but yet we seem our fees seem to be still relatively low but with the high level of responsibility what what are your thoughts on that well first of all i mean i've always believed that the architect can't escape responsibility for any aspect of the the building i mean the first port of call will be the architect's pi insurance um yes it gets more complicated if you've got a fire engineer or a, you know i'm bound away i think we said this before if you get a fire engineer's report, and all the ones I've ever seen all discuss Part B of the building regulations, they all relate to certain sections of Part B. So to understand what the fire engineer's written, you have to understand Part B to a good level. So 
you can't escape that. And with the change in the status of architects since Grenfell and the Building Safety Act, I, I, you know, I'd have to check this, but my, I don't believe that architects can get away from any of this. Um, you have to, you know, you're responsible, and you certainly you, you need to act like it's 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 your problem, um, and understand what these people are doing, um. And you know, it's evident that even if you do have all these specialists, it doesn't always work, does it? Because otherwise, we wouldn't have the Grenfell Inquiry and the Building Safety Act. Um, yeah, because all of these professions were involved in that, and it still went terribly wrong. So, having specialists on board doesn't may not necessarily, you know, be the solution. But you know, but I'm always I've got a very suppose traditional idea of what the architect's role is, and architecton, master builder in Greek. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I believe that architects have to understand, even if you've got a facade engineer, you have to understand what they're drawing. Yeah. You know, and um, and besides, most of the systems that facade engineers work with are designed by another company. I mean, I know this because I write CPDs and I see them. You know, yeah. the, the, the facade systems out there, which are pretty much engineered. So we're introducing lots of cooks into this mix. Um. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a complicated one. I know practices that use facade engineers at least exclusively. Um, I'd have to check and see what 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 the liability is there. Yeah. But in terms of the value of the architect, none of these people, none of these specialists, can do a thing, not a single thing. And I used to say this when I was in working in the construction company. Nobody in this company can do a thing until somebody draws something, an architect designs something. Yeah. Nobody knows what to do. And let's not forget that. Now, you might just say, oh, it's just pretty pictures. I say, well, that pretty picture is what you're building. So show some respect. Without that, you wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. So none of them would need to start. All these, you know, the architect is first and is always first. So put a value on that in terms of our civil society and our culture and our built environment. It's the architect that does that. Lots of other people are involved in helping it realise it. I get that. But the first mark is always made by the architect. And that's the value. That's where the yeah. value is. No, brilliant. It's um, I just, again, wanted to... This is a common thing that I've I've noticed um, through my research on LinkedIn, and I hear it more and more about imposter syndrome, um, you know, and and that link to I guess value or, um, you know, the lot there's a lot of people out there don't feel that they're um, worthy of being an architect, um, you know. I, I'm just really interested because you have fully focused in your in your agency on giving value and and and, and mm. what you do so what are your thoughts on imposter syndrome and the value of architects well imposter syndrome is a psychological condition isn't it so if an individual is feeling imposter syndrome and um, i'm familiar with that by the way and i'm sure a lot of people are yeah. you know am i worthy you're saying basically um 
Well, if you've got any conscience, everybody feels like they're not never quite good enough because, you know, you don't want to be overconfident, do you? But imposter syndrome is is a psychological effect. So if you feel that, then the first port of call is, 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 is perhaps think about your own psychological state and how you can get over that. Because, you know, you are worth it. If you're qualified and you're good at what you do and you've got some experience and you've got no reason to feel imposter. Um, if you strive for excellence and be, be professional, um, then no, you're not an imposter. Um, but it's quite common throughout life. That's not just architects who get, get feel that. Lots of people feel imposter syndrome. But you know, I, this is the danger of 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 focusing on the negative too much, because you will you'll always find reasons to beat yourself up. Was it my friend of mine used to say, hey, don't miss an opportunity to beat yourself up. <laughs> um, it could be cultural. It could be psychological. It's a whole bunch of things there. But I just wish the profession would be a bit more confident and we all led a bit more confidently. Yeah. Rather than keep raking over the innards and the entrails of what we've done wrong. You know, um, by all means, have a, by all means, you know, have some introspection and put things right and solve problems. But if you keep talking yourself down in front of all the other construction professionals, you just you're just doing their work for them. Stop it. <laughs> just stop it. Perception is reality. Okay. So if everybody perceives architects are, you know, are are lost lost confidence and they don't believe in themselves, it's like they're going to believe you. Stop stop saying it. Okay. You know. Think positively, work hard to do something different, but don't keep communication communicating weakness. It 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 doesn't stand well in the construction sector. It really doesn't. Um, so I wish people would be a bit more confident. You know, they're they're doing an amazing job. Architects are incredible. Nobody does what an architect does. Nobody. I wish we'd be yeah. a bit more confident. We had a bit more le leading confidence. You know. Um, I like that leading with confidence yeah just you know sometimes we need to kick the table over and say no <laughs> you know i'm not gonna it was that film where the guy leans out the window and he screams i'm mad as hell and i'm not gonna take it anymore what was it was it, was it um broadcast news is it peter finch not very old film but it's brilliant you can see it just google it he's screaming out of a window and he gets everybody to shout out their window <laughs> um <laughs> You know, stop being on. You can't. You can't move forward if you're on the back foot. Get on the front foot, as James Brown used to say. Was <laughs> that get on the right? Anyway, sorry, that, that's probably wrong. Sorry, just. But, but we need to build a bit more positivity, and yeah. you can only improve it if you work positively. I believe. Sure. I'm gonna. I'm gonna second to last question i'm going to go a little bit negative back to negative before we end up go on it's all right it's okay it's okay you know, there's we know the universities are full of, of students studying architecture you know the, the stats are mm. around there it's oversubscribed course the universities are increasing their numbers of students and we hear often that students are crying out saying the pay is terrible um but you know, there's there's a thing called Google, there's a thing called the RIBA, 
um, sort of you know salaries um, guidance that that's published every year. So you know you know roughly what you're going to be getting paid when you qualify. Yet more and more students are going into university. What what is wrong there? Why the f- complaining? Good point. Um, I ask a question. I, I do teach. I, I do a lecture once a year or so at Manchester School of Architecture, Year Six. Um, and I ask two questions, which always it, it's always a bit it's a bit naughty, but I always to get the ball rolling. First question I ask is, why are you here now? Good question. Why are you here now? What do you think is going to happen next? Or, you know, what do you believe is going to happen next? And the other question I ask is, put your hand up if you Googled what's an architect's salary before you started your degree. And the generation we've got coming out of part two now are the iPhone generation, iGen, Generation Z. So they have the most access to Google and things like that. Unlike the millennials, which were a borderline generation, and then of course Gen X, your generation, um, which didn't have any of that. So we had to go and ask people. Or um, and about 10% or less put their hands up. So I've come kind of come to the conclusion talking to a lot of students, a lot of architects, that they just didn't look. And of course, the next question that begs is why? Why didn't you look? Surely, if you're buying a house or a car or something like that, you Google things to the nth degree or a holiday to find out what all the what's going to cost you, etc., so you can afford it, but not with your career. That seems a bit strange. Um, I don't know the answer to that one, but I I've come to the conclusion that it's primarily an emotional decision. It could be to do with the title it could be to do with the the aura that goes around being an architect the sort of the um the vibe or the sort of culture it could be to do with status it could be to, it could be a number of things but as far as i can tell i mean there's nothing caveat emptor right it, let the buyer be aware if you go into something and invest time and money in it for year after year without knowing that it's going to be not as well paid as you think it is, you have to take some responsibility for that because you you made the decision as an adult. Yeah. So I don't know what the answer to that one is, but apart from, well, what do you think should happen? You know, let's talk to students like, well, what do you think should happen next? Well, I should be paid more. Okay. Well, how do you think you get paid more? You know, why is pace low? Is it, the market's flooded because there's just too many people coming through the course. I don't know. Um, but if we've got more student numbers than ever, and bearing in mind the university's business model is built on, first of all, architecture being a general kind of degree now, like English or history or something like that. About 50% of those graduates are not going to go on to study architecture to, to do their part two or part three. Yeah. So the university business model is predicated on getting us as many people through as possible at £9,250 a year. So that's their business model. That's the way they're set up. I'm not being judgmental. That's just the way it is. But we've got to say to ourselves as a profession, well, what effect is that having on the profession in terms of remuneration, especially at the less experienced levels? 
And bearing in mind that in any society, in any profession, in any industry, creative industry, you look at it, graphic design, you know, um, being a chef, you know, whatever, there's always a, what we call a dominance hierarchy. And there's the, the people who get to the top are either very well connected or extraordinarily talented um, or a combination of both. So it's always a fight because it, it is always a pyramid. The very few business owners and practice owners and, you know, named architects. And there's an awful lot of people at different career stages uh, going down the pyramid. So basically to earn more money, you've either got to, you've got to, well, what do you do? There's a number of strategies you can look at there, but at the end of the day, if you're if you're in that situation, you've got to ask yourself a series of questions. I think uh, that's what I would advise. Was number one, do I want to carry on with this or not? Is this fixable? Yeah. Or am I going to be throwing good money after bad? It's called the sunk cost fallacy when people carry on because they think I've invested too much to stop, and yet all you're doing then is throwing good money after bad. Or you could be. Do you think I'm going to? earn as much as I can, as fast as I can by doing X, Y, and Z, and then figure out what the X, Y, and Z is? Or am I going to up sticks and go and work in the Far East or something, or the Middle East? Um, you have choices. That's what I'm saying. So I don't believe it's a choice to sit there and just say, it's horrible and it's not fair. I mean, I, I, I get it, but it's not, it's not going to get you one iota closer to a solution. And by all means, feel bad, you know, talk about it and, you know, sort of vent some spleen. I get it. Everybody needs to do a bit of that. And I understand that. But sooner or later, you have to think, OK, like what am I going to do? Yeah. And I think you have to ask yourself that question as an adult. You got no, well, you've got no choice. Let, let's end on a positive note. And, and, you know, I do I do like to try and help the profession. And, you know, that's that's um partly why I'm doing this podcast you know students are studying architecture um there's criticism that they don't get involved or taught about the business of architecture um but you know what are the things that they could be doing whilst at university because it's a long course it's seven years to prepare themselves for going into practice and become valuable to the practice almost straight away you know what 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 advice would you give to them Okay, well, you've got several stages there, haven't you? You've got part one, part two, you know, and then leading on to part three. Um, presuming that that's probably going to be the system for a little while yet, unless they change until they change it. If you're in, a, I suppose what I would say, if you're a great, doing, a, you know, you're doing a degree in architecture and you really, really want to go and carry on and, you know, to part two and get and, and qualify ultimately, then you need to identify pretty quickly then after your degree you're going to be expected to go and work in an office and then like what's required um construction what i hear back from practice owners all the time is construction technology building legislation okay knowing the rudiments of detailing i mean not to a ridiculous extent but I mean, I always say in you know, a degree, you should be able to, a tutor should be able to say, right, we're going to do a, a two-storey extension on an existing house or a, even a single storey because you will hit most conditions. Yeah. You know, roof, eaves, 
windows, you know, you, you're going to hit an, an awful lot of conditions at abutments, flashings, you know, um, footings, yeah, all the things you're going to hit on a much bigger building. You're going to hit a fair chunk of them on an extension. And, you know, I think they should have to do that and then do a building regs application, basically. Uh, no matter how badly they get it wrong, doesn't matter. You got to start somewhere. So that involves understanding part A, part B, part M, part L, part F, part O, I suppose as well, would you? Um, so you have to understand about glazing. You have to understand about you know heat losses. You have to understand about fire, um, means of escape, things like that. So I, I would say you know if you want to go into before you go into practice at it's probably part one's probably a little that's hard that but certainly part two then you should be able to go and say right i've done i've de done this amount of detailing i've got this experience from working in practice i've you know i've attended a lot of cpds on part b part i'll have a record of it and just say i'm an, i'm not an expert and it's complicated but i'm i'm, I'm trying to understand the rudiments of it I can yeah, I understand doesn't... what a cavity wall is and what a rain screen cladding is and what you can use over 18 meters and what you can't. Um, that's not that difficult to find out. And there's lots of CPD programs out there. I should know. I write a lot of them. But also, I think universities need to really get involved in this. And, you know, to be useful to a practice, you've got to be able to use a computer, but you've also got to know what, roughly what you're drawing. So I think... That's what I'd say is if you want to be useful to a practice owner, then don't expect them to teach the difference between a vapor control layer and a breather membrane or something. You know, I have to, I have to think about, well, no, no, I do know the difference. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I do. Think about what your, your future employer wants and what they don't want is somebody coming and saying, I understand architecture because I'm sorry, but nobody coming out of school of architecture understands architecture you understand you got your you got your you're on the starting blocks you got your energy ticket you've learned yeah. a lot and you 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 hopefully the light's coming in your head about where architecture is um and you're all ready to go but then you need mentoring and you need a kindly associate to take you under their wing for the next three four years while you cut your teeth on all the difficult stuff <laughs> to do with the the running of a practice no, not the running of practice by all means, learn about business and marketing and sales and stuff. But in reality, it doesn't make sense. And I would really not recommend anybody trying to set up a practice straight out of part two, when they get their part two or part three, unless you've already been a you know, technologist for 15 years beforehand, because that's the fastest way to go bankrupt. Because somebody said to me, always make your mistakes with somebody else's PI insurance. <laughs> that was oh, what somebody like told me in practice once. So. Can I call you there? <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, um, be positive. You know, look, I know it's not easy. I, I I get it. I get it. And it's hard when you've got that kind of level of debt. But if you're gonna go for it, go for it. You know, you've got no choice. You've already committed, aren't yeah. you? You've already spent got 60,000 quid of the debt you got to make a decision am I going to abandon this or am I going to carry on and make the best of it and earn as much as I can whilst having a meaningful purposeful life that that 
you know, um, I, I don't see any other way out of it, Jason, unless you go into a different business, which is obviously you can do. Or move into a different area of construction, like project management or something, which does seem to pay better. But if you want to be an architect, then, you know, and there's something emotional that drives people to want to want to do that. Embrace it. It's what it, it, it might not be the best paid job in the world, but oh yeah, you'll get a lot of meaning out of life. You're doing something really, really important. And um, and good luck with that, because it's, you know, the architects create the world we see around us. That's important. That's my message. Be proud. Be positive. Try and make the best of it. Because what other choice have you got? Really, the reality. Yeah, the doctors and the lawyers that get paid lots of money, they um, have to work in buildings. And uh, who designs them? Well, you know, nothing is as straightforward as it looks. You want to be a doctor? Uh, my daughter-in-law is a doctor. She's a psychiatrist. Trust me, it's got its problems. I know a few lawyers. Trust me, they've got their problems. Nothing, nothing is as simple as it looks. And, you know, anyway, you've studied architecture. Do you, do you, do you really want to be, you know, prescribing antibiotics do you want to be you know digging around no i won't say it but you know what i mean i mean the one i always feel sorry for are dentists they've got the highest suicide rate of any profession you spend the whole day your whole day looking at somebody else's mouth <laughs> i'd say you don't have to do that you, you get to do stuff out in you know wow you get to draw wonderful things i mean there's a lot everything's got a downside jason nothing yeah. you know you know nothing is ever straightforward as it looks the grass is always greener, as they say. At the end of the day, all I can say to people is, if you're going to carry on, be a positive and make the best of it, because you really have, otherwise, it, 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 you're going to suffer, and needlessly. And if you can't, you really don't want to do that, then, you know, and you want to do something else, everybody will understand it's 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 understandable yeah. but if you're going to go for it just quick one for you there's a thing called a Hayes standard in the 1940s and 50s in cinema in hollywood you know and um you were allowed to film a couple in a bedroom <laughs> sitting on the bed and the rule was they both had to have one foot on the floor okay so in their minds, the idea would be that you, you can't do anything which is salacious or naughty, <laughs> if you like, if both people got one foot on the floor. You know what I mean? Think about it. Um, but of course, it also meant that, that, you know, the scene itself was always going to be anodyne and sort of like bland and, you know, you know, obviously that's all gone now. Um, but. I think there's an interesting analogy there. You can't live, go through your life as positively and with passion if you keep one foot on the floor. <laughs> that's a, that's a bit of a strange analogy, but you know, I love it. get I your love foot it. off the floor, <laughs> be oh, passionate, wow. enjoy it, and and if you feel like an imposter, then just remedy that. Do you, there's lots of things you do CBT. There's lots of things you can do. Talk to other people. You're not an imposter. And a mentor a mentor yeah you know everybody feels bad at some time 
everybody needs somebody to talk to. Um, even I do now. And, you know, I've got my the people I can talk to and, and you know, it helps. Yeah. But, you know, and, and to all these students of architecture, you're not on your own. Okay, this is, you know, you, you, you don't suffer in silence and on your own and don't develop dark thoughts, talk to people. There's always choices. There's always choices and you've always got options. Can't stress that enough. And that's what I've learned. You've always got options. No, thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure. Um, thank you for being on a really positive note as well. I think... Um, you know, there's a lot of learning that we can gather from 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 this discussion today, and just really appreciate your time uh, with us on the Broke Architect podcast. My my pleasure. And remember, being an architect is a lot cooler than being a you know a tax accountant. Okay, it's a lot cooler, isn't it? Come on, I mean, you know, it's 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 you know you 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 you're doing something in the world. Wow, that's what Aki thinks himself. Wow, I remember once. Sorry to go on a bit here, but. I remember once thinking when I was doing this building in Manchester, thinking, I'm going to spend like 10 million quid of somebody else's money <laughs> to do what I'd like to do. Well, within reason, obviously. <laughs> but I was, you know, driving the, the kind of the look of it. And the, and I'm thinking, that's pretty cool, that, isn't it? I mean, that's, 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 that, that's, yeah. that's something to be said for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I enjoyed that bit. So, was it said so enjoy yourself it's later than you think <laughs> that's, that's you know so you know and i just wanted to end positively no thank you so much thank you it's a real pleasure jason you do a lot for the you do a lot for for this i know you do so um it's it's and it's good that somebody's out there doing this stuff and presenting different viewpoints and hopefully some positive sides of things um yeah be careful out there <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. No, I spend all my spare time on, on, on this. So, um, yeah, really appreciate your uh, thoughts on that one. No problem, Jason. Not my pleasure. Now I'd just like to say something about the Architects Benevolent Society. This is a society that is dedicated to supporting past and present members of the architectural community and their families in times of need, from those starting out on their careers to those who are now in retirement. They help people who have experienced illness, accident, redundancy, unemployment, bereavement, or other personal difficulties. Now support ranges from confidential advice to financial assistance. Now my um, ask to you all who's listening is consider giving a donation. Um, there's many ways you can do this and you can even volunteer for the ABS and even fundraise and also you can also leave a gift in your will. So who do the Architects Benevolent Society help? Well, architects, architectural technologists, landscape architects and employees of architectural practices but also uh, the dependents of, um, of, of the professions I've just stated there. They also um, help and support students of architecture, architectural technology or landscape architecture. Now for more information on eligibility and to apply for help, please go to the ABS website which is absnet.org.uk. Thank you.
please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. The Broke Architect Architect. The Broke Architect.